Genre. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Jack O'Neill from Stargate SG-1. And joining me for the discussion is returning guest Virginia McAllister. Welcome back, Virginia. Thank you. Hello. So we are specifically going to be talking about the series pilot, Children of the Gods, which was written by Jonathan Glasner and Brad Wright and directed by Mario as a party. And it originally aired on July 27th, 1997 and tells the story of the Stargate reopening and the characters from the film reconnecting. This is a continuation of the 1994 film Stargate. We're also going to be talking about season two, episode 15, Fifth Race, which was written by Robert C. Cooper and directed by Brad Turner. And it aired on October 30th, 1998 and tells the story of Jack getting too much information downloaded into his brain. We're also talking about season four, episode six, window of opportunity which sees jack and tialk get caught in a time loop and i love a time loop story and this was written by joseph malozzi and paul mully and directed by peter de luis and it aired on august 11th in 2000 um now virginia we always do that like how we came to a question this is an interesting one for me because i remember seeing stargate in the movie theater and i would have been uh 13 or 14 when it came out uh and you know that's just the right age to like really love a, a big screen sci-fi film uh <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> like stargate um but then this I, and i remember hearing while i was still in high school that they were gonna do a stargate tv series and it seemed like a natural story to continue expanding the world of like the mythology of the film clearly could be layered on uh to either more films uh or or tv show but then the tv show aired on uh showtime which we didn't get in our cable package. So I just kind of missed the boat <laughs> on, on watching this series. And I've never circled back until you suggested that we cover some of the TV show Stargate. Uh, and it's a series that I knew had good critical reviews. I knew people who were fans of it. I had just never watched a single episode until preparing for this podcast. So thank you for suggesting it. But how did you come to the TV series? Oh, well, happy to introduce you to it because it is one of my all-time favorite TV shows. Um, I, I don't know when I first started watching it. Cause I, I know I saw the movie was a big fan of the movie was a, aware of the TV show. I, I don't remember, you know, watching it on Showtime, but I remember vividly watching it on sci-fi. It was on Friday nights and part of, you know, a couple different sci-fi shows that they sort of built around Stargate on, on Friday nights and eventually Battlestar Galactica was added to it and things like that. So I, I watched it pretty religiously on sci-fi and since I have rewatched the entire series, I owned DVDs of it, you know, things like that. I did watch the spin-off shows, so I just have been a big fan of it for a really long time. So I guess in that early 2000s when after the show had moved from Showtime to the Sci-Fi Channel, Sci-Fi had Stargate and Battlestar Galactica. That was like really big franchise science fiction stuff that yeah it was know, kind of like the, the heyday of sci-fi tv you mm -hmm. know was i think when you had both of those shows and they had some other shows going um but i don't think that any of them were were as big or as critically acclaimed as those two so having those two together was just a really exciting night of tv if you're a sci-fi geek yeah 
Um, okay, so let's get into some trivia about this. So Stargate SG-1 is a TV series that follows up on the 1994 film Stargate. In that film, that was written by Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich and directed by Emmerich, an ancient device that opens wormholes uh, connecting planets is discovered, and it plays into the idea that uh, ancient Earth uh, mythologies were responding, or or at least there's some overlap of the technology of these aliens that could travel by wormhole and mythologies of ancient Earth civilizations. Uh, and in the movie, it's dealing with ancient Egyptian mythology. My understanding is the show expands on that into other mythologies um, yes. as well. And uh, in the in the film, Kurt Russell plays Jack O'Neill and James Spader plays Dr. Daniel Jackson. For the TV show, Richard Dean Anderson plays Jack O'Neill and Michael Shanks plays Daniel Jackson. So they they kept the character, the two main characters from the film uh, as uh, but with different actors uh, and are kind of continuing the story from the film. Stargate SG-1 ran for 10 seasons and 214 episodes. That is a lot of episodes. Um, it is one of the longest running con continuous sci-fi shows of all time. Supernatural is, uh, at least for American TV shows, the longest, then Stargate, the next files, Doctor Who, like it's a muddy thing with Doctor Who and, and British TV seasons and what counts and, you know, specials that are filling in between, you know, a two year gap. Does that count? I don't know. Uh, so <laughs> we're just going to acknowledge that Doctor Who is out there as yes. <laughs> one of the most produced sci-fi franchises in history. Uh, but in terms of American TV shows, uh, th this is one of the longest running sci-fi shows um it aired from 1997 to 2007 and then two direct to dvd films were made to wrap up some of the unfinished storylines uh this was an american canadian production that first aired on showtime before it moved to the sci-fi channel in 2002 while it was on showtime a special deal was made for episodes to air in syndication six months after they first aired on showtime and that allowed it to find a wider audience. Uh, Stargate was the was Showtime's most watched show, and the pilot received Showtime's highest ever ratings for a series premiere with an audience of approximately 1.5 million households. Um, unusual for series, Showtime ordered 44 episodes, like uh, two seasons essentially, before uh, the pilot was produced. Halfway through the first season, they ordered another 44 episodes. So, like they they had a four season commitment right off the bat. Almost it sounds like. Uh, the series was popular enough that in the vein of classic Star Trek or, or sci-fi series like Star Trek, there were spin-off series. So Stargate Atlantis ran for five seasons and 100 episodes from 2004 to 2009. Stargate Universe uh, ran for two seasons and 40 episodes from 2009 to 2011. In 2018, a web miniseries called Stargate Origins was released. And there was an animated series, Stargate Infinity, released in 2002. But that seems to not be considered canon within the franchise, which like does also align with Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> if you're <laughs> aware of the early animated series of Star Trek, uh, the franchise has also produced books, uh, comic books, toys, audio serials, games like just think of, uh, you know, everything that Star Wars or Star Trek or, or, you know, those things, you know, spill over into all these other parts of the entertainment world. And Stargate did, uh, was doing that as well in the early 2000s. There's a fan convention called GateCon. That was held annually from 2000 to 2008. And there have been four more, just not annually. The latest of these was in 2022. It seems like there's usually a, a two or three year break and then they'll do another gate con. Um, Stargate was produced by MGM and MGM was fully purchased by Amazon in 2022. So there are, of course, rumors that Amazon is planning a new iteration of the Stargate franchise, uh, but nothing is in production yet. And I didn't realize like how sprawling the franchise was until i was pulling up all this trivia and it kind of immediately it's like why isn't there 
a Stargate thing happening, <laughs> you know, right now when every streaming service seems desperate for a uh, recognizable IP that has a pre-existing fan base. This seems like a yeah. natural. Uh, so I will be shocked if there is not a new Stargate within the next few years on Amazon. I've heard a movie and a TV show. They want both. So that's what okay. I've heard is currently out there, but who knows how long that will take. I mean, I remember way back when the 1994 film came out, they immediately said they were, they had planned a trilogy and uh, I think they've revisited saying they want to make two more, like, like the original mm-hmm. uh, team wants to go back and make two more Stargate. And I have no idea what that would do to the TV series. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Would, I, would we I'm, end I'm up with of how that would work with yeah. some of the storylines <laughs> they did in the TV show, I, but where they just pretend the TV shows don't exist and go do their yeah. own thing. And uh, I, I don't know I, I, at this point with it all being housed in Amazon, I would guess since Amazon is also wants people to go watch these ones that they've bought, that they would build off of the TV series and not go revisit the original film. But who knows? Uh, franchises get rebooted all the time. So anything is possible. Um, and then th- this one also just surprised me when I found uh, it was mentioned in the Wikipedia article that, you know, all the Stargate shows, they were British American TV shows and they were produced in British, uh, Columbia, uh, or sorry, Canadian American TV shows and produced in British Columbia, but it's been estimated that the franchise injected $1 billion into the British Columbia economy. That is impressive. I did not realize that. Either, <laughs> I mean, I guess so. it's, it's, you know, by the time that all the spinoffs and the, the movies are wrapping up, it's about 15 years of steady production. Right, right. With cast and crew, and I, so I guess it makes sense, but it's still a lot of money. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that was impressive when I read that. Yeah, uh, Virginia, you found a little bit of extra trivia as well. I did. I, some of this I was already aware of that I just thought was fun, and and other things just you know reading more about the show again. Um, so a couple things. This uh, when Richard Dean Anderson um, joined the cast of Stargate, he wanted some. Uh, changes to happen to the character um, before he agreed to sign on. Uh, one of those is you would you wouldn't know it unless you're you know reading the the um, closed caption or something like that. But he insisted that the last name be changed to two L's instead of one in O'Neill, just to differentiate the two different O'Neills. Okay, so that's the um, reason why I was just wondering why, but it's really just to kind of acknowledge that this is a different person playing this character. Yeah, well, and he wanted him to be funnier. He wanted him to be less by the rules, by the book, right? The the Kurt Russell character is is very much your kind of typical military by the book. And he wanted Anderson, to, or um, Richard Dean Anderson wanted the Jack O'Neill character to be a little bit more of a maverick and, and willing to bend the rules and things like that. So um, I think he wanted to show it was a, a different personality to his okay. version. Um, and then he also wanted it to be more of an ensemble show. He talked about how, you know, he had done MacGyver, right. That was kind of like a one man show and he really wanted others to play off of. So we, we still had Daniel Jackson, um, but they also included a new character, Samantha Carter, played by Amanda Tapping, and then Teal'c, played by Christopher Judge, and um, George Hammond, played by Don S. Davis. So they they became kind of the other main um, supporting characters of the show. Um, and then this one I, I, I was always aware of, but um, loved kind of reading more about it. Um, Stargate was very much endorsed and supported by the United States Armed Forces, um, particularly the Air Force Space Command, which is now the U.S. Space Force. Um, and they uh, felt that the depiction of the Air Force um, on the show was so kind of 
true to life and exemplary that uh, Richard Dean Anderson was awarded in a, an honorary rank of Air Force Brigadier General. Um, and a couple of um, Air Force uh, chiefs of staff appeared on the show as well. Um, I mean, so- the military loves things like top you know top gun uh or uh oh i mean there's any number of ones where when when the military are the heroes the u.s government is willing to get behind and support those franchises <laughs> yeah so they loved stargate they were big fans <laughs> so they always made that known um and in fact the sgc which is stargate command um so it's um located in, in what's called cheyenne mountain complex you see that a couple times Uh, in the show where they'll show a scene of Cheyenne Mountain Complex. This is an actual Space Force installation. Um, It was part of the Air Force at the time of the series. So those exterior shots are real shots of the Air Force base. Um, It's a mountain base. um, So they show the actual entrance. They'll show sometimes blast doors. um, And those exist in the facility in real life. And in fact, now there is a door that has a signed marked Stargate command on it. I've heard it's actually just a broom closet if you go inside, but so many people have asked where Stargate that they actually have a door designated Stargate command. So <laughs> kind of fun. Um, and then this one was a, a kind of a fun fact. So it talked about how there's the Torino scale, um, which is used to rate the probability that something will collide with Earth. Um, and so in 2004, they found an asteroid um, that uh, had a small but possible chance that it would hit our planet in the near future. And they named the asteroid Apophis after one of the villains of SG-1. Um, so that was kind of a, a fun fact there. I always enjoy it when, uh, you know, pop culture uh, <laughs> gets appropriated for, for scientific names and labels of things. Yes. So clearly someone, you know, some Stargate fan <laughs> involved in uh, the discovery or the naming of that, um, yes, that definitely. asteroid. <laughs> All right. Well, before we move on to the summary of these episodes, we want to thank you for downloading this episode and listening. And we especially want to thank any of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media that we're consuming that we're not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast. And we also give updates on the fantasy box office game that we're playing for the entire year. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. So now on to the spoiler zone summary of these episodes. And Virginia, you were kind enough uh, to write up the summaries of these. So I'll let you take that away. All right. Um, So I think first off, it will help to have maybe a few definitions or background (laughs) information just to make sense what some of the terms are. Um, So first off, Stargate, it's a large ring that looks like it's made of stone and it's carved with constellations around the edges. Um, So in the movie, we saw that they discovered that if they um, basically dialed or churned the ring to hit seven different symbols, that's what created this wormhole that would allow them to travel. Um, And they were specifically able to go to to a planet called Abydos, um, and they learned that they could use the gates to travel back and forth. So just a little explanation of what the Stargate is. There were a lot of symbols around that ring. So I think anyone who watched the movie was just waiting to say, you know, they're going to go other places, right? We're going to see. Right. Well, yeah, uh, really, we have this whole gate only for to use seven of them. So makes sense that you have a a wide opening for a lot more travel, right, that they explore in the show. 
Um, then we've got the gold. They're, they are these large snake-like parasites with kind of four fangs when they open their mouth. Um, and when they implant themselves in a human host, they can control the actions of the host. Uh, they also provide additional strength, longevity, things like that. So in the movie, Ra was a gold. Um, and due to his powers, he could present himself as a god. Um, and then I don't think this was part of the movie introduced in the show were the Jaffa, which are basically like warrior slaves that serve the gold. And um, they are basically incubators for these parasites and until they're ready to take a host. So that comes into play. In they, the show. they largely function as like stormtroopers, just kind of wandering right. around and shooting things and getting shot. Yes, pretty much. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> but one of them becomes quite important to the show. Mm -hmm. So um, just wanted to give that little bit of background that will help it make sense um, as we um, go into the episode description. Okay, so starting off with, um, we started with season one, episode one, because that just, you know, kind of brings the band together, right, and, and reminds us of all of the kind of things that happened with the movie and then where they're going forward um, with it, with the TV show. Um, so this series begins about a year after the events of the movie, um, Stargate, and at this point the Stargate is just sitting unused but guarded in that Cheyenne Mountain military facility. Um, suddenly the gate activates and the Jaffa warriors led by a gold dressed in gold comes through kidnapping a female soldier and killing several others. Um, and at that point they go hunt down Colonel Jack O'Neill who uh, had retired after the events of the movie and he's called to Stargate Command um, to uh, discuss what actually happened right after at the end of the movie uh, and he admits that they did kill Ra, but they did not destroy the stargate on abydos as they were ordered and also that doc dr daniel jackson did not die but chose to stay behind on abydos and study the people and live with them um at that point o'neill is introduced to dr captain samantha carter she is both a doctor astrophysicist and a captain as an air force officer um, and she worked at the Pentagon studying the Stargate. And despite Colonel O'Neill's initial misgivings, he's ordered to have Captain Carter join him and go to Abydos to retrieve Daniel and figure out what gold came through the Stargate if Ra is in fact dead. Um, so at that point, O'Neill and Carter meet Daniel on Abydos, uh, along with Daniel's wife, Sharae, and her brother, Skara. Those were also characters from the movie um, that we met previously. And Daniel theorizes that the alien who came through the gate was impersonating another Egyptian god, um, in this case, Apophis. Uh, and he shows them a cartouche with thousands of other gate addresses, suggesting that there's a network of gates throughout the universe. So that's obviously setting up the show that they're then going to explore all of these worlds um, now that they have all these gate addresses. Uh, while looking at the cartouche, aliens come through the gate, um, including Apophis, on Abydos, and they take Sharae and Skara. Daniel decides at that point to go back to Earth and become part of the new team called SG-1 in hopes of finding Apophis and his wife. Uh, one of the soldiers saw the gate address that Apophis used, and the team goes to that planet and ends up in prison there. Apophis arrives with Sharae and announces that um, she has become his queen and is now being controlled by the Gould. Um, she shows her eyes glowing. That's one of those signs that she's controlled by this parasite. I'm going to just uh, guess, though, that there's times that people are controlled, but their eyes never glow when anyone else is looking at them. They just glow for the audience, like as everyone else yes. turns away. Suddenly the eyes glow. <laughs> yeah. right. It's just, just dramatic effect <laughs> to make the eyes glow. 
Um, and Apophis announces that they're going to choose others to become the children of the gods and be implanted by the with these parasites as well. Uh, they choose a few, including Skara, and then tell the Jaffa warriors to kill the rest. But one of the warriors hesitates, and O'Neill pleads with him to help him save the people. Uh, this warrior, his name is Teal'c, he turns on the other Jaffa and throws Jack a weapon. And then together they're able to escape with the prisoners and return to Earth. And then after they return, uh, O'Neill recommends to General Hammond that Teal'c, who has at this point disavowed any loyalty to the Gould, become part of SG-1. So that's really, you know, kind of the point of the episode is is putting this team together, right? At this point, mm-hmm. it's um, Jack O'Neill, Dr. Daniel Jackson, um, Captain Carter, and then Teal'c. Um, so that's now the team of SG-1. Um, okay, so then the <laughs> next episode we looked at was um, in season two, episode 15. Um, this one's called The Fifth Race. So at this point, SG-1 is visiting a lot of these worlds where they um, got those addresses off of the cartouche. Um, and they visit a room that looks like it has some old language on it. And Daniel theorizes that this could belong to an ancient race that actually built the Stargates. Um, so they think there was another race besides the Gould who were the ones who actually built all these gates throughout the galaxy. Uh, and when O'Neill looks at a device on the wall, it suddenly encases his head and shines a beam of light into his eyes. And then he collapses on the floor. And back on Earth, he starts to use strange words in conversation to the point that he can no longer speak um, English at all. And Daniel recognizes some of the words as variations of Latin. Uh, and then after they find Jack writing computer code and inputting new gate addresses, uh, Daniel believes that this ancient race di- basically downloaded a database of their knowledge into um, O'Neill's brain. <laughs> However, his brain is now operating well beyond what should be normal capacity um, for a human. And the doctor predicts that at some point it will begin to shut down um, under the strain of all the activity. So uh, Teal and Captain Carter visit um, uh, one of the new planets. He inputted a lot of addresses for new planets and they visit one of these in hopes of finding uh, information that will help O'Neill. But the device to activate the gate is broken um, on that other planet and the temperature is rising to almost 200 degrees. Um, So even though he can't communicate at this point, O'Neill, with his new knowledge, is able to build a device to help them get home and then build... What was that? I was just saying, so at this point, like it, the the overwhelming amount of information in his brain is actually like now broken down so that he can't speak, which right. I thought for an actor, that actually might be a relief, like to know I'm on screen all the time, but I don't actually have to say anything. This, <laughs> I don't need to uh, know I, any lines. I don't have to memorize my lines. I just got to walk around the room and, and tinker uh, to build a device. That's uh, you know, a relief for the, uh, for the main character who I, I can't even imagine across 10 years how many lines of dialogue he did memorize. Right. Of course, before that, he had to learn some Latin. So there is that. Yes. <laughs> it's a trade-off. Right? He so did you a good job of making the Latin sa- sa- sound casual. Like he started to like intersperse he it with, with his yeah. regular speech. You know, with English, he would just drop in a Latin word. It's like the first red flag for everyone else that something is going wrong with him, uh, that he's just dropping in it. But he did a good job of making it feel like a natural part of the flow of, of his language. Agreed. And as a, a Latin major in college, I appreciate any episode where I get to hear a little Latin spoken <laughs> and interpreted. So um, maybe one of the reasons why I chose this episode. 
Um, anyway, so um, let's see. So Jack, uh, he dials a new gate address using eight instead of seven of the chevrons or the constellations. So that was new um, and suggesting that it's going to go way outside our galaxy and basically further than they had ever gone before. Um, and O'Neill then walks through the gate alone and falls into a room populated by what, by what appears to be aliens that look, I think, suspiciously like a lot of the drawings associated with like Area 51 or aliens uh, who abduct humans. Yeah. Right. Like the gangly, you know, long, thin limbs and the big bulbous kind of and, and gray skin and big, big eyes. Big eye, the yeah. huge black eyes Didn't, that almost um, look like, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's another one that I feel like I should have watched, but I've never actually watched very much X-Files. I think X-Files used this design uh, mm-hmm. at some point as well. That's another one I need to go back and, and do for the podcast. Let's go talk about X-Files and watch that. Yes. But yeah, it, it felt like a very um, like 90s sci-fi alien design. Exactly. Um, yep. Yeah. Um, but in this case, rather than being, you know, kind of um, antagonistic to humans, they actually save him by removing the knowledge from his brain and reveal that they are the Asgard. So here we're playing with another um, Earth mythology, right, that they are the ancient protectors of humanity. Uh, and they explain that they were one of four great races that were in an alliance, including the ancients, who were the Stargate builders. Um, and that they have um, actively studied humanity over the years. And they tell O'Neill that while the humans have much to prove, they have taken a significant first step towards becoming the fifth race um, as they shake his hand with the idea that um, at some point humanity will kind of prove themselves worthy of being part of this alliance with other great races in the universe. All right, so last episode, season four, episode six, Window of Opportunity. You cannot talk about Stargate without talking about this episode. It will appear on almost every best or favorite Stargate episode list right up there at the top. So that's why we had to talk about this one, um, because it's it's just up there on all the lists. Uh, and this is uh, definitely a... Um, a Groundhog Day episode, right? Ty Blue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think at one point they even mention Groundhog Day um, in there specifically. Um, so in this case, they're on another planet, um, the SG-1 team, and they've met an archaeologist named Malachi who's studying um, some of the ancient relics on that planet. Uh, and then as a geomagnetic storm begins, he suddenly activates a device. And as O'Neill and Teal'c are trying to stop him, they are struck by kind of blue lightning, this blue energy field. Uh, and they then enter this Groundhog Day loop as they find themselves back at Stargate Command and basically experiencing the same 10 hours over and over. Um, it turns out that all of the SGC is experiencing the ta- same time loop, but only Jack and Teal'c are aware of it. Uh, and so as they get the other ones on board and help them understand what's going on, Daniel begins teaching them the ancient language. This is the same ancient language that he already had in his brain and then got dumped out of his brain. And now he has to learn it again so he can figure out how this device is working and how to stop the loop. Um, and in the meantime, they also realize that they can behave as they want with no lasting consequences. So they take, you know, some breaks to learn pottery, to juggle, to bike through the SGC, hit golf balls through the Stargate wormhole. Uh, and in one loop, O'Neill f- uh, submits his resignation so he can finally kiss Captain Carter. For any fans of uh, Stargate, this is a big moment. I guess there was um, some shipping <laughs> going on with those two characters. What was that? Some shipping going on with those two characters. Very much. <laughs> So that was a big moment. 
Um, eventually they deciphered that the machine was built by the ancients so they could travel back and save their dying world, um, but they could never get the machine to work. So if they couldn't figure it out, they knew that um, Malachi and SG-1 were going to have no hope of figuring it out. Um, so uh, they go and confront Malachi and he admits that he was activating the loop to try to figure out how to get back to see his dead wife again. Um, but when SG-1 explains that it never worked, uh, and Jack expresses his anguish of having lost his son and understanding that type of pain that Malachi feels, they eventually convince him to stop the machine ending the time loop. Um, and then in the end, it, we discovered that that had been going on for at least several months um, at that point. Um, I mean, with the way they play with like the the montage, it felt like it could have easily been a year that they were. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and learning, having to learn that language and yeah. yeah. And all the, the kind of sitting in class with Daniel or getting to the point where they could finally tell him, no, you're wrong about this interpretation of the language. It's really this and things like that. It it feels like it has been quite some time that they've been going through that loop. Yeah, but they're they're only getting like a chunk of a day. It's not even like a, a full day even, right? It's No, it's just I think they say 10 hours um, at one point. I mean, that's not even enough time to go. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That, that would be rough he, to just he have always a 10 hour come, he always comes back to breakfast where he's eating fruit loops which you know i think is kind of the play on the idea that this is a loop episode mm-hmm. um and then in that final scene we see him just relishing eating oatmeal yeah. rather than fruit loops finally <laughs> so. um well thank you for summarizing those i thought these episodes all kind of gave it, they were good to give me a, a sense of the series where, mm-hmm. you know, the pilot is going to kind of set up the ground rules and you can see all the possibilities of what this, you know, what the series is going to do. And then we get a grand mythology episode mm-hmm. with fifth race yeah. where you kind of sense like this, yep. they, they want to play with big ideas uh, and, you know, comment about, you know, a lot of things, but also, you know, interlock all of human mythology into one grand narrative and all the, all these kind of concepts. And then the time loop episode is a pretty self-contained one, but it still reveals stuff about the characters. Like, like, you know, I, I, I had seen three episodes and I could tell there was some tension uh, and you see the kiss happen uh, (laughs) in this episode, but you also get the moment where he opens up uh, about uh, his his son dying, which I still remember from the Mm -hmm. original film. Like he, I think he has a line in the original film about no parent should ever outlive their child, you know, like a character, revealing line that has always stuck with me uh it's very on the nose <laughs> but it it's stuck with me since i saw that film in 1994 uh and they go and revisit that and so um i i thought there was a good breadth of tone of uh you know across hundreds of episodes you expect to see different kinds of stories being told and this captured uh, several of them so i thought it was a good selection that you gave me to watch okay do you have a favorite of these three uh well window of opportunity uh, like i said it really it's on everybody's top you know top 10 or best mm-hmm. episode list usually right up there in the top two or three um of the list that i've seen it's usually not number one but it's like two you know right. or three um just because it's it's just fun like you said it's more self-contained it did it does give you the payoff moment of a lot of story that they had been building between like Jack and Sam and you know and things like that so it does give you that kind of payoff moment and um but also emotional moments you know and and so yeah I think that was definitely up there on my list as well yeah I I like what you said about um it it seemed 
to be paying off some long-term story tensions. Uh, but also it was fun. Like you, you mm-hmm. could tell there was just some fun parts of this. And even in that kind of, kind of reveling in the, in this high concept idea and everything that you can do with it. I learned some about the characters, like the, the way that Jack first starts to convince people that he's doing this time loop is um, he, he says scientific concepts accurately. <laughs> Right. people and they're like oh something's wrong <laughs> like immediate red flag for everyone and you right. know i have not watched the four seasons to get to this point but that that tells me plenty about who jack is as kind of the uh you know slightly maverick rogue uh alpha male leader uh, right. uh you know this group that is like i'm not the one here to think i'm the one to go do right uh, and so when he's like i've been in this briefing four times now you're about to tell me about you know, the coronal emission, uh, whatever it is. It's like, whoa. Yeah. And, and, or, and then or, someone's like, well, maybe he just read the briefing and that's how I do it. And everyone around the table is like, Jack did not yeah. read the briefing. Daniel <laughs> looks at like, maybe he read the report. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. really? This is Jack. <laughs> right. So, so uh, I mean, they're having fun with it, but there is good character revelations and the way they, they do the story. There's also some pathos that comes at the end. Like you feel both for mm-hmm. Malachi and for Jack at the end and to capture all that in, you know, the 44 minute runtime that the episode has, uh, I, I thought it did quite a lot. And so I understand why it is a highly regarded episode of the series. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just a very memorable one. I think that's also why, you know, when you've got 200 plus episodes, it can be hard for certain ones to really stand out. But I feel like this is always one that really stood out and I could very easily go back to it and remember exactly where it, what season it's in, you know, what Mm -hmm. happened in it, things like that. So it's just that one um, that kind of jumps out at you. And I'm guessing also with as sprawling as the franchise becomes, you do start to have like uh, this episode is like picking up three threads, but also introducing one more thread. And, and, and so to have a self-contained full mm-hmm. story uh, does probably stand out. Uh, I think that's the nature of all these long running series that we're talking about that, that a lot of it starts to run together about like, which episode are we learning X, Y, or Z? And this is just, here's everything in 44 minutes. Right. Yep. Um, the, uh, what, what was the name of the second one that you, you had summarized? Uh, the fifth race. race. I will say like when we got to the end, I was, uh, and you know, he's traveled and we see the aliens, something about how it was shot. And I'm sure this was deliberate. It definitely was giving me, um, like close encounters of the third kind and a little bit of like 2001 mm-hmm. a space odyssey vibes, uh, and just the, 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 the pacing of those final scenes and the communication, mm-hmm. uh, that he gets, but it also, I don't know if all this was because of like the weight of those other classic sci-fi things that this is somewhat referencing or the sense that this is a, you know, a big mythological moment for the series, but like you felt a weight of uh, significance uh, mm-hmm. to, to, to that yeah. end. That's, I think that's part of why I picked this one um, too. Cause I, I did want to give you different flavors of the show, you know, by picking a couple different episodes and I, and the same, I felt like this one had a little more gravitas to it, especially at the end it wasn't quite as comedic for him, you know, mm-hmm. and showed a, a more um, respectful and like serious side where he realized kind of the weight of this first contact moment with another species and a very powerful species that they want to be friends with you uh, yes. know, because <laughs> because they're dealing with the gold who are a big threat to them. And this is like the first time where I think they sense this could be an ally that could help us, you know, and, and he felt like the weight of that, um, of that moment with them. 
Yeah, everything about his performance and the staging. And I mean, I'm sure he was just standing in an empty green screen room, right? Right. <laughs> every, everything is CGI around him. <laughs> but uh, the way they give us all the CGI aliens and the CG background uh, that, that we get, you do get a sense of gravitas uh, yeah. uh, about the sequence, um, which, which again, I hadn't built up i'm guessing like if you've built up you know 40 episodes around you know by the time you're hitting that one there's so much foundation that's been laid but it's still translated even without me watching those 40 episodes of build up to there right yeah you still like you said just how they how they played it the music the setting the you know kind of the tropes they're playing with from other sci-fi um shows and movies and things like that it just plays into that moment and i think that's an interesting thing about uh intertextuality that uh, th- those references do affect like our reception of this new text, uh, be, you know, as it is acknowledging what the alien design and and the score and the the look of otherworldliness that as audiences we've come to know, even by by referencing it, we're, we're bringing all of that baggage with us to to this new to this new thing. But it it, it works on its own, but also it is kind of interconnected uh, to so much of the media uh, mm-hmm. that 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 exists. That I'm sure the the creators of the series have consumed so much science fiction you know <laughs> just yes. devoured right. uh the, the these foundational texts uh and now now they're building on it in a way that doesn't feel like it's ripping off or um or just derivative of mm-hmm. these existing texts but acknowledging them and allowing the audience to to see that acknowledgement as a way to bring some weight to this scene yep and even like we already talked about even the styling of these aliens you know, making them look like the aliens that are often associated with, you know, alien abductions or something sinister. But in this case, you find that, no, they're just curious about humanity, but they're not antagonistic towards us. They're not an enemy. They're even a potential ally. So they kind of spin that on its head a little bit where you first might think that, oh, these are, this is going to be a really bad situation he finds himself in. Um, or these could be very dangerous to him. And in fact, they're very friendly um, and open to him. And even when they start speaking English, like at first, aren't they speaking a, a, like a gibberish alien language yes. to us? Yeah. But when they start speaking English, that can look really hokey coming out of alien uh, features sometimes. Uh, but it all worked. Uh, mm-hmm. Whoever, whatever actually was reading the lines gave it the right weight. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and somehow they synced it all up in a way that didn't feel cheesy. Right. As I was watching it. I realized I think those aliens remind me of I just remember the commercials for that Fox hoax thing in the 90s, the alien autopsy that they were presenting as though it was a documentary, but it was just a straight up hoax. <laughs> <laughs> I think the alien think designs that. look a lot like those commercials that Fox was running uh-huh. nonstop at some yep. point in the 90s. <laughs> oh, Fox, what a weird network history that show that channel has. <laughs> and um, the first one, I will say, uh, both gave me a good sense of it, like it reminded me of the film like because they use the film score right mm-hmm. I, i'm remembering that accurate like again i haven't watched that film in probably 20 plus years but i heard the score i'm like oh that's the stargate music mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, from the film uh and but it also like when the uh what were the names of the foot soldiers that are just their version of uh of oh, the jaffa when they walked through i thought this is a doctor who <laughs> like it just felt like a like that kind of like b-level tv doctor who, yes. which is fine i'm not like knocking it they're working on a budget oh, no. <laughs> and you have to sometimes just as an audience embrace that this is not big budget so it evoked what was i'm sure a very expensive film production uh i mean it was emmerich so i'm sure it went over budget that man is not known for reigning in his excesses 
Um, and it, it evoked it in the, the the music and the feel of the story, but also you knew this was not even network television, you know, budget that, that mm-hmm. was going on. And again, if you're a fan of science fiction, you probably have seen Doctor Who episodes or Star Trek episodes, you know, that were done for syndication, not really for a network and has a, has a different budget level uh, to it. Uh, but it also did demarcate it away from the film, just just in the visual aesthetic, but not in a way that kind of bothered me. Like I, I was pretty in on it within 30 seconds of seeing it. Oh, I, it's actually kind of fun just to see the the uh, the poor stunt crew that just have to like <laughs> march around and stand in positions and then like throw themselves back periodically. <laughs> Well, and I think especially, especially in maybe the first season when they go to planets and some of the costuming, uh, I mean, I think you see it some in this first episode, mm-hmm. you know, the the costuming of like the, the worshipers that they encounter on the planet. It, um, it didn't feel uh, big, big Hollywood budget. Right, exactly. I mean, some of those costumes are just, yeah, <laughs> you can tell they were doing their best on a, a very mean, but, limited but is, costume budget. <laughs> that is part of the tradition of, you know, um, Lost in Space, Star Trek. Mm-hmm. It's like, what do we have lying around? Even Star yeah. Wars, like the Cantina scene is literally some of those aliens are like, what masks do we have lying around this London studio? Uh, yep. And you be like fans know like, well, that was actually the werewolf costume from, you know, this B film that had been produced the year before. Uh, and that became a werewolf alien sitting in the cantina. Uh, this is what you do <laughs> when, you're, yep. when you're making uh, spectacle things, but on a budget. Yeah. Or there's a lot of uh, people in togas uh, as they visit some of these planets, you know, where it's like the minimal costuming possible, right? Grab some sheets yeah. and we're good. There's <laughs> a, an episode of Community where uh, it's like app development, where, where like the, the, the whole campus becomes a dystopia. Uh, but uh, oh, yeah. the ruling class as it becomes a dystopia, they look like they're out of 1960s Star Trek or Stargate mm-hmm. SG-1. Like it is just yes. kind of like random bright colored toga apparel. Why? because that's what we've used to denote upper class aliens <laughs> yes well, it, it's an interesting visual but you even see it in uh you know in comics where there is no budget but like a lot of aliens are wearing togas in 1960s marvel comics mm-hmm. uh you know when they show up it's it's something that we've just started to to visually denote and i'm sure it does go back to budget yeah oh yeah well and in this case they're playing with the idea too that these are are all based on ancient cultures from earth right that earth was kind of seeding all these galaxies and so all of these planets have people you know that came up from different ancient cultures from earth and so togas are easy right you know to kind of play with that and and some of these other costumes but but yeah they're they're pretty cheesy in some places and but like you said it's kind of part of the fun of it (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, I think as fans, you just learn to embrace that part of, of mm-hmm. the shows <laughs> yeah. if you're going to be watching them. And it's not going to be going away. Like, yes, we're in the age of streaming and everything, but those streaming budgets are not going to be what they once were. I'm just telling you now, people. <laughs> we're, we're seeing the, the impact of overspending from the streamers, yeah. and it's going to be lower budgets from here on out for a lot of these kinds of shows. And as the series, though, goes, it also does get, more evolved, more high tech. I mean, by the time you hit like Stargate Atlantis, you know, the, the costuming, the makeup, much more well done. Um, Mm -hmm. the, the technology they show, like, I love seeing these early episodes of the computers they're working on. (laughs) It was like a DOS screen when he was like coding. I'm like, that 
this would have been like by the year 2000 weren't we past that at least for coding right (laughs) but yeah you see some of the the early you know computer and just the way they represent technology and you definitely see that evolve with the times um Mm -hmm. as you kind of grow up with the series and and go through it so um the character that we definitely see the most uh centered is jack and i i would presume that's common throughout the series that he is the central protagonist even as it is an ensemble show um and like i said you uh even in just these episodes you get a sense of like the the haunted past uh but also um the loyalty and also that he is a good leader even if he doesn't always follow the rules i mean shocking mm-hmm. that we would get that kind of character type <laughs> you know, the, especially the, in sci-fi the, we, the rule breaker that actually to. gets the job done and everyone has to yeah, kind of grudgingly true. respect him even his higher ups who are angry at him for breaking the rules because that's how it happens uh in real life <laughs> um but uh, is there anything else that you would say to define that character um no i i think that sums it up pretty well i mean i think that was the intention that's how he wanted to play him um he does you know have he's uh often the comedic relief um and a lot of times it's in sort of a sardonic way you know it's not um directly funny but with the the tone he uses with the expression um you know things like that um you can see that he is aware of what the situation actually is, you know, and, and mm-hmm. how seriously others are taking it. And he will sometimes take the, the opposite route of kind of playing it down a little bit just to break the tension, things like that. Um, so he has that. I think you see that some in, in window of opportunity. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, and I, I like that as a character trait too, when it's shown that uh, the character like is in on it. Cause sometimes I think mm-hmm. that idea of using this kind of hyper masculine character uh, or, or, you know, alpha character to break, break it, it becomes like, well, they're, they're, they're the buffoon that everyone is right. like, blowing their eyes at. Um, but in this, he, you know, he's not studying the science, but he gets it, you know, yeah. he, he he's, he's going to be, uh, he's not going to be the one making the next theory, but he will get enough to understand the theory when it's explained to him. Uh, yeah. And, and, he is deliberately breaking the tension. It's not out of ignorance, uh, you know, that he's saying the, the the stupid thing that makes the scientists roll their eyes at the military guy or something like that. Yeah. So I, I appreciate that about his character. And, and interestingly, throughout the series, um, it is not uh, Colonel, J- or, uh, Colonel O'Neill or Daniel Jackson who make it through the whole series. It's actually the new characters, Sam and Teal'c, are continuously in every season um but by the end of stargate um colonel o'neill has taken a a different job that's more of a desk job he's no longer going on missions so he only appears every once in a while um and someone else takes over as the leader of sg1 Mm -hmm. um and daniel dies oh i think at least two or three times um so <laughs> they're they're not af- afraid to uh play with that when it comes to him and all sorts of kind of mystical journeys that he goes on um so i was thought it was interesting that you know like richard dean anderson actually does not make it through the whole um series but i think it speaks to what he wanted to create that he wanted an ensemble and that the series could last without him basically you know, and that was really what he wanted to create from the show. And um, like I said, it's it's one of the m- most successful franchises, you know, in 
science fiction TV history. Uh, and a lot of when we think about science fiction franchises, it's, you know, Star Trek that goes back to the 60s. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, this is one that one film in the 90s and then became a very long running sprawling uh, franchise for, for yeah. television. Um, and and other media, um, you know, I, I still remember um, in college, uh, in one of my class, I think it was a linguistics class. Uh, I ran into the professor, my, my professor at Barnes and Noble, and he was looking at Stargate novels. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, I was like, oh, hey, professor. And he's like, oh, there's, there's a new one out. <laughs> I had to be picking up. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. But I, th- I mean, I think that's... Um you know, going back to that thought that it really, while Richard Dean Anderson obviously was the most well-known, you know, person to come into this, that it worked because of the SG-1 team, the -hmm. idea that it was a team. And so he, you know, different characters could go in and out of this team, but as long as they had a good dynamic of, you know, who were playing the different members of the team, it still worked as a show because they still had an SG one team and it didn't really matter who the characters were that were part of it. Yeah. And it's a rich enough concept, um, you know, of the, these gates to other worlds, Mm -hmm. uh, that immediately, I think once you hear that, you know, Oh, I I can see how this can support a long running TV series. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and and playing with all the mythologies, Right. You know, okay, you start out with sort of Egyptian mythology and then, oh, let's bring in the Asgard. Right. We have a different mythology. And, you know, and so kind of bringing these these things that are familiar um, to it, you know, where it's you kind of start anticipating, okay, well, what are they going to bring in next? Right. Or, or, you know, what else are they going to discover that feels familiar? Yeah. Um, And there is something about this vein of sci-fi television and playing with mythologies because star trek would do that all the time how many mm-hmm. godlike beings did star trek the original series run into that were like explaining oh these the, you know they they visited earth uh you know and marvel does it with thor and, you know oh the mm-hmm. asgardians you know you know they, they were visiting earth uh it, it it is you know an impulse in uh genre storytelling i think to look back at these older, almost genre type stories, you know, that fit in some of that uh, fantastical vein of what we consider genre fiction today and say, can we pick up these pieces and kind of play in the sandbox uh, and layer in our new things? Uh, Mm -hmm. But, but, you know, acknowledging, uh, you know, this this human impulse to tell these fantastical stories. Yes. Yep. Um, So, so, we we said it feels likely that there's going to be some more Stargate uh, happening at some point in the future. What vein would you want that to go in? Would you want it to be a continuation Ooh. of everything that came before? Or would you want like a franchise reboot situation? Or would you want a little bit of column A and column B, a la the Star Trek films that J.J. Abrams did? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I have to think about it. Because I, I also, I really like Stargate Atlantis. Um and I think there would be some interesting things that they could still do there. Um, the the Stargate, I think, what was it? Stargate Universe was the name of it. That one kind of took a darker tone, so wasn't as much of a fan of that one. But um, I, I think there's probably still more that they could just do with sort of this original concept of mm-hmm. 
just exploring these different worlds, right? You know, that all have gates on them. It's not like they explored every single world that has a gate. I mean, in the so one I episode think- I saw, they introduced like 800 new gates that yeah. they, they weren't aware of. It's like, oh, okay. He just downloaded, uh, you know, basically as many stories as we ever want to tell are now available because he, he got all that information downloaded into his brain and typed it into the computer. Yeah. And while they played out kind of the, the Gould um, storyline, I think they've played that out pretty thoroughly throughout the show. So I, I don't know where they'd go with that um, in terms of trying to do additional movies that played with that storyline of people impersonating Egyptian gods or something like that. I mean, I guess maybe they can impersonate different or other types of gods, but um, but I think there's certainly plenty they could still play with of the idea of going to other worlds and there there are other antagonists out there, you know, mm-hmm. who have used technology or, um, you know, just bred to be bad kind of thing, you know, like the Gould <laughs> and, and just, you know, that could play an antagonist to these teams that are just trying to go out and explore, you know, or gain new technology or alliances or things like that. So I think I'd kind of like to see them come back to that. Um, say, okay. That original Everything that's idea happened. and play with that some more. Yeah. You know, these series happened, right. You know, but there's still so much more that we get to do there's still more. from that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's not like, you know, as it ended, it felt like, the Stargate program was going away or that there was going to be no, no longer reason for it. Right. That they had, I mean, they had dealt with some bad guys, but you certainly had the sense that there could be other ones out there. Um, so, you know, I feel like they still have a, a pretty open-ended opportunity there to do that. Those parasite worms things, uh, <laughs> reminded me both of, uh, you know, alien, Right. You know, with the, mm-hmm. the, the chest yep. cavity bursting, but also the ear bugs from Wrath of Khan. Yes. It was, you know, <laughs> it, it was a little, a little of both of those mixed together. Yes. <laughs> There's yep. one scene where it like it left a dying alien and entered one of the human soldiers in the, in the pilot. It wasn't quite clear how it entered, but I just assumed it was right in the ear like those bugs on Wrath of Khan. Um, it actually just kind of burrows just, in just suddenly it, in there in the neck, kind of the yeah. neck area. So the next episode, um, after that first episode deals with what happens to that character, um, mm-hmm. and, and how it entered and what it does once it enters the body, you know, and things yeah. like that. So it, it definitely, that next episode kind of expands a little bit more information about those gold. And somehow like, like it, it's kind of like when I talked about the end of fifth race, like I could see it evoking these other classic sci-fi things, but it also was its own thing. Like those belly flaps, that's just straight up creaky, creepy. The way the, <laughs> that's so, oh. the little worms come oh. out of the belly flaps of these aliens. Uh, and that feels different from alien and wrath of Khan, even as it, you know, the idea of this little parasite going into someone and, you know, changing their mind. I'm like, okay, I've seen that before. Uh, but, but it still felt distinct enough that I didn't feel like it was just straight up rip off of, of stuff I'd seen. Yeah. Well, and it's an interesting play of, you know, here's this warrior, right. That's sworn his allegiance to earth. And yet he's literally carrying around in him, one of their enemies at the same time, he's going around on missions with them and protecting them and, you know, and things like that. But, but he's become dependent on it where, you know, if that was removed from him, he'd die. Um, and so it's, it's just such an interesting play on, you know, okay, you've got your ally literally carrying your enemy 
in him and walking around with you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> on Earth and on other planets and things like that. Some immediate tension is available yes. for storytellers with that. Oh, yeah. So there's always that tension around his character. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in, you know, and obviously it sparks different levels of mistrust or suspicion of him, you know, for different people and things like that. So um, as we're about to wrap up, we spent a lot of time talking about Jack. Are there any other characters, maybe not even from this episode, but just as someone who's seen all of Stargate uh, that stand out to you as favorites? Oh, I I mean, I love the whole team. I, re- I really do genuinely enjoy like the chemistry of the whole team and that each of them bring a different element, you know, that you have um, Daniel is kind of the nerdy, you know, academic, right? And I definitely appreciate that having, you know, <laughs> kind of felt that way in the, um, a lot of my life. And, um, and I love Sam for, you know, what she represents, obviously, for women that this is probably the smartest member of the team, the most competent member of the team, you know, yet she's the woman, um, right on the team. And, and so I very much appreciate that. Um, I will say, like, again, I've only watched three episodes and uh, I could sense some of the tension. And then we see the kiss that happens in, you know, the season four episode. But it never felt like that she was there as a love interest, which in some of these sci fi shows, it feels like if there's a woman character, she is there to create romantic tension. Uh, And I did not feel that for Sam. So I just wanted to put put that out there for her. I appreciate that. And and I do. It's never that way. Um, I mean, you know, in, in terms of spoilers, they never actually show them getting together in this timeline, shall we say, you know, <laughs> there's certainly some episodes where they play with kind of alternate realities or timelines where they hint at things, but they always keep their relationship, you know, kind of as it should be considering their military ranks and, and things like that. And she really isn't there. Uh, you know, it's it, the tension is there, but like you said, she's not there just to be like a the, love interest. The for nurse him. chapel on Star Trek, the semi-recurring exactly. female character that is just there for an occasional uh, bit of flirtation from Captain Kirk until right. the character gets written out because of some behind-the-scenes stuff that involves uh, bad men. I will just say, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think by the end, she's probably the you know kind of the heart of the team um, over all the seasons, um, and so. Um, yeah, I, I really, I like her character and sort of the evolution, um, throughout where it, it, on the one hand, it remains very consistent. Um, but I think you see her more and more become kind of the core of the team, mm-hmm. um, which is fun. And, um, and yeah, so I, I like them. And then, yeah, as the series goes on, you obviously get introduced to, um, kind of some recurring, um, side characters, um, that are fun. There's uh, Teok's mentor. He's kind of like an Obi-Wan Kenobi mm-hmm. um, character, Braytac. Um, so really love him. Uh, he's a lot of fun. Uh, and there's, you know, there's some others, but really it is just about this core. So if they don't work, the show doesn't work, but they work really well. So, um, you know, I just ended up enjoying all of them. All right. Well, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us, Virginia. Listeners, thank you for downloading this episode. For links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast of choice. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Scott Top to composed our theme music. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and great story. So long.
I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're just we're discussing Jack. Oh, no, I'm gonna get a fresh take on that for Andrew. <laughs> <laughs>